I'm reading from Esther chapter 9 and verses 1 to 19. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Odelia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erasai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. And what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you, and what further is your request, and it shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a challenging chapter. We're not familiar with these kinds of edicts, at least in our culture today, and yet they were very common in the day in which Esther was written, a few hundred years before the birth of Christ. But our Lord, this passage is rich with significance as it illuminates really what the whole Bible is about. 
And so, our Lord, as we see the tables turned here, minister to us by your own word, written and completed and in all fulfilled, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. If I could begin my ministry again, I'd do a whole lot more with the stories in the Bible. Now, those who tabulate these kinds of statistics have, have noted that about 70% of the scriptures are stories, they're, they're drama, and about 30% of the scriptures are doctrine. Here's drama, drama, Christ died. Here's doctrine, Christ died for my sins. Stories. Stories have been called the highest art of language. In fact, storytelling itself has been called the highest art of language. And that's because God is the great storyteller. But, but why stories? Why are stories so important? Well, a couple of reasons. One is that helps us make sense of the world and of our lives. Otherwise, uh, we have a lot of data that's ultimately meaningless. I think that's part of the attraction of artificial intelligence. It's able to take all of this data that's been amassed and all of these computers and make some sense out of it as you ask it questions and so on. Otherwise, the data is just data. Uh, one old writer said, without air, our cells die. Without a story, our selves die. That's a great statement. Without air, our cells die, and without a story, our selves die. We need stories to make sense of our world and of our lives. But, but there's another reason, and that is that there's a peculiar power in stories. One thinks of Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, that came out before the, the war between the states, the Civil War. And, and what Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, did really was, was rouse a nation when hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons just could not do exactly the same thing. So stories have a particular power. Now, the best stories are, have a certain pattern to them. Crisis, and then complicated circumstances, and then a satisfying resolution or a conclusion, if you will. We have a satiety index when it comes to eating. A high satiety index means you're very, very satisfied when you're done with a meal. And so in the best of stories, between the crisis and then the complicated circumstances and the satisfying resolution, there's a very high satiety index. All the pieces, as it were, are put together. And in the best of stories, there's movement. Usually it's from down to up. You have uh, something happens, a catastrophe, again a crisis. And uh, th then in the midst of these complicated circumstances, there's heroism. And the upside of the story brings us to redemption, if you will, Redemption in this case meaning to recover something that was lost or to gain something that was needed. Also, in a real satisfying story, evil is condemned. I, I think the best example, at least in, in movie lore, of, of this kind of a, of a best story is Star Wars, not one through three, and, and not, and not uh, uh, seven, eight, and nine, 
uh, but 4, 5, and 6, which are really the first ones that were issued, kind of classic story. You got the good guys and your bad guys. You got the evil empire. You've got the rebellion that's trying to oppose it. And you have the hero. The hero is, is Luke Skywalker. And uh, Luke Skywalker wants to become a Jedi Knight. He wants to be redeemed. He wants to receive something that was, or recover something that was lost, or gain something that was needed. And of course, there's evil depicted in in Star Wars, especially by the evil Emperor, and he is to be defeated. So you see all of those, all of those, all those elements of of a, of a really good story. Crisis complicated circumstances and satisfying resolution. And there's two types of stories, really from way, way, way back. Uh, it's been understood that there are two types of stories, traditionally called tragedy, in which you go from joy to pain. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is the classic tragedy. And then there's something called comedy. It doesn't mean it's funny, uh, but in a comedy you go from pain to joy. Uh, when you think of the the classic movie that we all watch around Christmas time, it's a wonderful life and George Bailey and and uh, he has pain that happens. He's about ready to commit suicide, and then as the way the story goes, it turns to joy. That's kind of a classic of what would be called a comedy. Now, all good stories have elements of both tragedy and comedy, but there's basically two main types: tragedy and comedy. That's interesting in the modern day. It's very interesting. We need stories, but we're really not able to come up with good stories. And more than one person has commented, that's because there's no storyteller. If you have a culture that doesn't believe there's a storyteller, then how are you going to have stories that, that are meaningful at all? One thinks of, of the old comedy series Seinfeld, shows about nothing. Uh, and that's something of a metaphor of the stories in our culture. Well, and we are going to get to Esther in just a moment, but let's talk for just a moment about the one grand true story that is both tragedy and comedy. It's told uh, by God, the great storyteller. The great macro story is the whole Bible as it focuses on Jesus. There is tragedy we go from joy to the pain of the fall, and then there's comedy. We go from pain to the joy of redemption. You see it in, in, the, in the wonderful story that's told by God, the great storyteller. So there's the macro story, and that's the whole Bible as it focuses on Jesus. Remember, the Bible, folks, is not an encyclopedia. The Bible is like the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a big story with lots of other stories in the middle of it, and those we call micro-stories. So micro-stories, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel, the prophets, Esther. Esther is a micro-story, and it is a little picture of the macro-story. And that's why we're all enjoying this um, miniature of the one grand true story, the book of Esther. It's a story uh, that ministers to you. And, and, and ministers, as they minister the stories, their longing is for you to enter into the macro story of the Bible, the story of the Lord Jesus, what we call the gospel. And micro stories also call us to do that. Wow. 
what a <laughs> what a lengthy introduction. But here we go. What are we doing today as we come to Esther chapter 9? One, let's look at this story, a micro story. Then number two, the one grand true story, the macro story, and then your story. So, so let's look at the micro story in, in, the, in Esther chapter 9. Um, in this story, the, this micro story, remember, this micro story is written by God, and it's a story that he's written, and it's being acted out in human history. And, and here it, it is tragedy. We remember in the, in the book of Esther, as we've gone through it, we really do have tragedy because you have the Israelites who were in the land and enjoying the land, and then there was exile to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that we know of as Israel and then Judah, and we're dealing with those who were exiled into Persia. That, that's the tragedy. They go from the, to the pain of being in exile. And um, there is Haman, who has a decree that brings more and more pain to the Israelites and there is one crisis after another. The decree against the Jews, they have someone that they think will help them out. Uh, Esther is now the queen to the king. This is an amazing thing, but Esther doesn't really seem to be helping them out because all she can do is throw banquets to which she invites Haman, who is the enemy of the Jews. But all stories have a climax, the climax is not really the ending of the story, but it is the decisive turning point. And in Esther, as you see this joy that is becoming pain and pain that will be experienced in a few months if there's this holocaust against them, the decisive turning point in the book of Esther is chapter 6 and verse 1. And that night the king could not sleep. From that point... We have in Esther what's called the denouement. The word denouement mean, means to untie or to bring to resolution. And chapter 6 and verse 2, right through chapter 8 and verse 15, begins this denouement in which, because you can't undo an edict of the king to massacre the Jews, there would be another edict that would be issued that would allow the Jews to defend themselves that would allow the Jews to carry out justice against the Persians, and that's been issued. And that begins to untie these things that have been tied together in Esther. And then the comedy comes. Remember what comedy is in classic literature is from pain to joy. Chapter 9 and verse 1, it's the 12th month. Finally the time comes for the annihilation of the Jews all the way between India and Ethiopia, month of Adar and the 13th day of the same, that would be roughly about the month of our March, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. Here's the tables turned. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. There's there's the comedy. And and all that follows in chapter nine that we read really is details. There's statistics that are in there, but it really just develops this denouement climax, if you will, in which the tables are turned against the Persians by the Jews. But but why why is this story here? 
Why is this story of the massacre of so many people? Well, remember the big story, okay, the, the, the macro story. Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall, you have the curse upon the woman, in pain she shall bring forth children. But embedded in that is this promise, the seed of the woman uh, will crush the seed of the devil. The seed comes from the man. In this case, we're looking forward to a child that would be born of a woman apart from human paternity. Sounds like a virgin birth. And the 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 serpent will will bruise the heel of of that seed. Sounds like the cross. But Embedded in that is this statement, there will be enmity, there will be a struggle, there will be warfare between your seed and her seed. The whole big story is a story of warfare between God's people and those who oppose God's people. You read that from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. And Genesis chapter 12, God now, God now is beginning to call his people. He calls Abraham and his family. And he says, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever curses you, I will curse. God is identified with his people. And if you really bless God, you'll bless his people. And if you really hate God, you're going to curse his people, as we learned. And God says he'll send his cursing upon them. And you see, you see that illustrated in Exodus chapter 17. The Israelites have come through the Red Sea. They've been victorious over their enemies. The, the Egyptians, the horse and the rider have been cast into the sea. And you think all's going to be well, but it isn't. Because in chapter 17, you have the Amalekites as the antagonists against the Lord's people. They oppose the Lord's people. And there's a battle that you can read about there. And the Lord says that he will at one point blot out the name of the Amalekites who are opposing God's people. Now, that is to be carried out in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where the first king of Israel, Saul, is given a commission to wipe out the descendants of the Amalekites under a king called Agag. Agag is to be executed. All of the people are to be executed. The Israelites are not to take the plunder of the people because this is a warfare not against property but against people. It's a picture. It's what's called an intrusion ethic, an intrusion in history of what God will do at the last day when he thoroughly wipes out all those who have opposed him and his people. And at this crucial point where Saul as an emissary of God, as a representative of God, is to, call, is to do this holy warfare, he fails. He fails to utterly to, de to destroy King Agag, and the plot property is plundered. And as a result, Saul, 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 to 26, Saul is rejected as king. He did not kill all of the Amalekites or Agag, in this holy war, as God commanded him to do, and they plundered the goods. Israel was not to 
strengthen itself with property in this. This was a warfare against people as there will be at the last day when all of the opponents of God are dealt with. Again, it's an intrusion ethic. God is intruding this picture, this amazing picture of the macro story into these micro stories. But God has a promise. Exodus 17 and 14, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That is God's promise. It's a micro story of the macro story of what will happen at the last day. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, God's going to take his time doing this, but he will finish the job. What a lesson that is for you and for me, our lives in God, the very, very same thing. God makes promises to us, and he will fulfill them. He makes them in Esther, in, in chapter 9, in, in verses 2 through 9. God now begins to fulfill his promise over time. And in chapter 9, in verses 7 through 9, God, God is now wiping out those who oppose him. The descendant of Agag, Haman, has been executed, although his children are to be executed, and they are here. And those who are cursing God's people in this particular opposition to them, they are also being judged. Now, there's a lot more than meets the eye in this text. In chapter 9 and verses 7 through 9, you have these interesting Persian names of the ten sons of Haman. And don't be put off by this. This was standard if you were wiping out your enemies in this period pre the birth of Christ. Uh, you, would, you would destroy their family members lest they rise up against you. But these, these are the Persian names of Haman's sons. Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adelia, Eridatha, and Parmashatta, Arasai, and Aridai, and Valzatha. These Persian names are names that were connected with the demonic world in the Persian Empire. And this is only one of two cases in the Old Testament in which you have these kinds of pagans' names listed like this. And in many of the manuscripts, these names are listed in the margins vertically. Why? Well, many believe, and I agree with them, that it's indicating not only that these were hanged, their names were given vertically, but that God was victorious over them, and not only victorious over them, but victorious over the demonic powers that they represented. Isn't it interesting that at the last day you have the bringing together of the judgment of the nations and the judgment of the devil and his angels? That's what you see pictured in most of what we're reading in Esther chapter 9. It is a micro-story of the macro-story of God's judgment at the last day. But, but, we talked about stories having a high satiety index. This one doesn't. It is not really a satisfying conclusion. If it's a comedy, if, 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 we're, going, if we're going from 
tragedy to joy, if we're going from pain to joy, uh, it's really, really not satisfactory. In fact, it's very, very temporary. It's true in verses 17 through 19. Uh, there's joy and there's gladness. We'll learn a little bit more about that next week. But it really doesn't last because there are enemies that are going to follow dealing with Israel, uh, the Ammonites and the Samaritans and even Persian satraps. You read of this in the book of Ezra and, and Nehemiah as the Israelites are trying to rebuild another portion of the empire, trying to rebuild uh, the temple and rebuild their area. They meet terrific opposition. And then in the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the Hellenists, various Greek leaders that followed Alexander the Great, in which there was tremendous pressure for Israel to compromise its convictions, above all under the leadership of the Hellenist leader Antiochus Epiphanes, who defiled the temple. And then when that was done, the Romans came. The Romans subjugated Israel. That's why when, when the Lord Jesus came into the world, there was such a hatred of the Romans because the Romans opposed the Israelites. They had them captivity in, in captivity. There were those enemies the tragedy continued. But, but there was a deeper tragedy. Because even as we read about these things, we also read at the end of the Old Testament and in readings that we can do about the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, was a tremendous loss of piety of the Israelites. I mean, you see it in the book of Esther. You don't even see a specific reference to God even though God is at work. The religion of the Jews turned into the horrible legalism of the Pharisees. There was even a denial of the miraculous things that had caused Israel to even exist in a group we know of in the New Testament as the Sadducees. And so the best of these micro-stories about God dealing with his enemies are utterly unsatisfying. Tragedy to comedy, yes, but it was temporary. But there was comedy going to tragedy because there is still death. Death of a nation, death by opposition, death in the soul. It's writ large. And you see that in the pessimism of today's stories. There is, as you come to the Old Testament no clear resolution of things. And the stories of today often have no clear resolution. Evil triumphs in many of the modern stories as evil seems to triumph in at least parts of the end of the Old Testament. And we are left utterly unsatisfied. That, that's, I could put it this way, that's pretty much a reading of the whole Old Testament. The book of Ecclesiastes you could make the argument that the book of Ecclesiastes was among the last, if not the last, of the books written in the Old Testament. And Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And when you come to the very last book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, of Malachi, chapter 4, listen to the way the very beginning of the last chapter of the Old Testament begins. For behold, stop and think about this, 
The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is another way of God saying, I will utterly blot out the memory, the root and the branch, of all those who have opposed me. Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. <laughs> there is one grand, true story that gives us good news. That's the macro story. Tragedy, well, we go from creation to the fall. What a tragedy that was. But then comedy. We go from God beginning to redeem his people after giving a, a promise hundreds and hundreds of years going in which that promise is not realized at all the way we expect. And then the climax of the story. Isn't it interesting how John chapter 1 parallels Genesis chapter 1 the creation to the fall, notice how the climax comes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's the denouement. That's redemption. That's, that's the whole story, the whole macro story from the coming of Christ until he returns. There's a lot of micro stories in it, but that's the macro story. Notice a grand hero. That one who was anticipated in the Old Testament, the one even in the promise of Isaiah uh, chapter 9, one who is the mighty God, literally the hero God. And that one is born of a virgin in this climax where, where Jesus is born and comes into the world. And what does he do as the hero? Well, we read a little bit about his upbringing, but not much. It's mostly about his public ministry of three and a half years and his battles, how things looked bleak, complicated circumstances, battles by the devil. He is challenged by the world system, the religious leaders who almost, almost from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry are wanting to be rid of him. He faces the manifold effects of sin in the world. Notice Jesus doesn't really deal with the Romans in his life, but he deals with sin. He deals with the effects of sin, leprosy, blindness, lameness, death, hunger. Our Lord Jesus deals with really what is the heart of the issue of the enemies of God, the heart itself. And then there, as things become, as in all stories, complicated circumstances become seemingly insurmountable. He is opposed by the religious leaders and the combination of them. He is opposed by 
the underleaders in Jerusalem where he is. He is opposed by the governor, Pilate, the representative of the Roman Empire. He is abandoned by his own disciples. One of his own betrayed him. And as you look at this story, it becomes more and more and more complicated and insurmountable. And Jesus is condemned to a cross, the, the worst of all forms of punishment that could be afflicted only on the worst of criminals. He is exhausted. He is made to bear the cross behind the scenes. He is doing battle with the devil. He has already said, now is your time, and now is your hour, and the power of evil and you have the combined forces of the devil and all of his angels, the world system, and Jesus is bearing the sin of his people. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we go to the ultimate tragedy, even in this denouement, in which God inflicts holy war on his own son and all those who are in him. Malachi 4.1, that day of judgment that we are to behold, falls on Christ and on all of his people in him. Tragedy in the macro story. But now comedy. Things go up after this. By the cross... The devil himself is disarmed. By the cross, his power to accuse of sin is done away with. By the cross, the devil's power to destroy is done away with. By the cross, the devil's power to, to bear witness against God's people and indict them is taken away because God wrote, took away the handwriting of ordinances that was written against us, and he did away with it by the cross. The comedy begins in the very middle of the tragedy, and because the tragedy in which holy war fell on God's own son, it becomes the comedy in which Satan is disarmed, and while the heel of the seed of the woman is bruised, the head of the serpent is crushed. The serpent will never again have his power, but Jesus will. His heel was bruised, but on the first Easter Sunday, he was raised. He ascended into heaven 40 days later. His reign begins, and it begins to be carried out in the world by the sending of the Holy Spirit, and he will return. And that denouement, that will have its finale in the return of Christ includes the triumphs of grace, not only in Christ, but in the objects of his grace, people like you and me, where God takes people who are full of tragedy and he works in them by his grace. But that, that kind of gets us a little bit ahead of things. Let's, let's just finally bring this together in this way I hope you're getting the point about stories. Uh, I, Esther's a micro story. I just told you the macro story. What about your story? It's written by God, and it's played out by you in human history for as many days as God gives you. You share in that tragedy. 
whether you like it or not. You are part of God's creation. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in the mother's womb. And God, as it were, extends that creative work, making that unique you, soul and body. But you also share in the fall of our first parents, uh, both the sin and the guilt of Adam's first sin attaches to you as by one man sin entered into the world and so death by sin so death passed upon all because all sinned all sinned in adam you sinned in adam and so did i and you in this tragedy right now you're in a fallen world in which you struggle to make sense be honest and, and there's two roads for all of you one is you can continue in this tragedy. God will give you the various parts that he's ordained for his life, but how do you connect them? Remember, in this world, there's no grand storyteller. In fact, this world hates the grand storyteller. It's, it's atheism, it's agnosticism, it's blasphemy. He says, we don't want this storyteller to tell our story. Now, you can continue that way in your life. Or you can stop and do what everyone should do. Consider the great elephant in the room of human history, God in Christ, his coming, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign, his return, these things we just covered in the macro story. You've got to consider that macro story, or quite frankly, this world is simply a mass of data with no, no sense to it. And, and, and that God in Christ has, denuma, something called a kingdom. A kingdom that he's building in all of the world, and it's got loads of micro-stories. It's got the micro-stories of every each one of his own chosen people whom he redeems in history, delivers from wrath to grace, and forms them, makes them to be more than conquerors in Christ. Uh, that, that's part of the denouement. It's part of the beauty of, of, of the work that the, the macro-story is doing in people like us who are the micro-stories. But if you're not part of that micro story as an object of God's grace, what do you do? Well, when there's a kingdom being established, and there is, and there's a king, and there is, and his name is Jesus, and you are going astray, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, what do you do? Well, you surrender. You throw up the white flag of surrender. It's not just a matter of saying my story doesn't make sense. But what it says is my story is in one way or another a tragedy and you can fill in the blanks on that and I don't want it to be a tragedy. I want it to be the comedy of being one delivered from self and brought to Christ. And the only way that will come is when you surrender. And when you surrender, you win. In all things, we are, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be difficult circumstances in your story in Christ. There will still be that. Remember, 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 even in, in comedies, there's always elements of tragedy. And how often do we say, oh, God is love, but this world is full of so much hate. Yeah, God is in control, but everything seems like chaos. I'm standing on the promises, but I sure do have a lot of disappointments 
and a lot of heartache. Remember Esther. God had made promises of what he was going to do to this relatively unknown tribe of people, the Amalekites and Agag and his descendants. But in Esther, God fulfills exactly what he said he would do. He will blot out the memory of the Amalekites. This great story is going to fulfill all of his promises, not least his promises for you. See, the great storyteller has written all of these things, tragedy and comedy, into your story. And he does it with his pen dipped in the ink of Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And, what, and what's the end of a life that surrendered to Christ? Oh, there's a lot of tragedy in it. Tragedy that began from our conception. In sin did my mother conceive me. But it ends in the wonderful comedy in which you will be, in Christ, a triumph of grace that will lead to the eternal triumphs of glory. See, the fall in God's story is the great tragedy. But the consequence of the fall in God's story includes Christ, who comes to do in history what would never be done if there'd never been a fall. He brings about redemption, and grace triumphs over tragedy. That's the comedy. And what he will do, and this is what's glorious, the Lord Jesus isn't going to bring us back to Eden where there's another possibility of tragedy and falling. But in glory, there's no chance for tragedy again. And that's when the satiety index, it'll be a thousand percent, folks. Perfect comedy, no more tragedy, forever or forever. Let me ask you a question. Is the end of your life tragedy or comedy? You continue to try to write your story or live your story without surrendering to the macro story, something called the gospel, something called Christ. And your life will be tragedy. A modern writer is, and he's speaking satirically here, but he's talking about basically the meaninglessness of modern thinking and the modern story. He, he writes, We are the flotsam of cosmic explosion and biological survival machines. We are wet robots clinging to an insignificant rock hurtling through a meaningless universe toward eternal extinction. Still, all that being said, the new flavored latte from Starbucks is incredible. Oh, and have you tried hot yoga? We're renovating the kitchen, too. So, you know, ah, that's nice. As the annihilating tsunami of time bears down on us, we obsess over our sandcastles, the promotion, the holiday, the new gadget, and we dare not look up. Life is a tragedy, and this dismal tale is sold to us in every magazine and paperback. Quote, the thousand books you must read before you die, end quote. The ten must-see destinations for your bucket list. The shape of the story is up, then down, 
And the advertisers are primed to sell you the uppiest up that money can buy because the down really is a downer. The photographs are glossy, but they mask an unutterable tragedy. Life, according to the wisdom of the age, is about enjoying our brief moment in the sun. We clamber upwards. We grab for ourselves all the achievements, experiences, and pleasures that we can. And then, so soon, we're over the hill and the grave awaits. It's up, then down. The frowny face, the tragedy. Or as the tragic bumper sticker puts it, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's tragedy. What is comedy? Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 5. For those who surrender their own story to the great macro story, Jesus, of which Esther is a micro story. Then, says the Apostle John, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Notice the end of the Old Testament. Behold, judgment. The end of the New Testament. Behold, oh, the ultimate comedy. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more for the former things, tragedy, have passed away. What ultimately is your life? Is it this comedy or is it tragedy? May God grant to all of us the grace to run away from the tragedies of our lives by nature and run to the great comedy that the grace of God in Christ brings into the world and brings into people just like us. Let's pray. Lord, turn us, we pray, from the tragedy of the fall and our part in it and all the consequences of it, ultimately the wages of sin that is death. Turn us from that tragedy to the great comedy that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that those who believe in him might never perish but it might have everlasting life. Grant that life to all of us, we pray, in the mighty, good name of the conquering King Jesus. Amen.